In 1521, at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings. Luther responded, Unless I am convinced from the sacred scriptures that I am in error, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Will you stand with us as we proclaim these Reformation truths in the 21st century? You can take your stand by becoming a monthly or annual contributor to Issues Etc. Find out the benefits of becoming an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Click the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses. Help us proclaim the solas of the Reformation. Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ alone. Here we stand, Issues Etc. and you. The hymn, I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. And in the gospel reading for this coming Sunday, according to the three-year lectionary, we see the great contrast between the light that Christ brings into the world and his great love of God's word. And he says to his opponents who are again testing him, a theological test this time, you do not know the word of God. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, October the 23rd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Sean Denzer joins us to look forward to Sunday morning. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome. Great to be with you, Todd. We have seen the Jewish leaders responding to Jesus' teaching with all kinds of traps and attacks. What trap do they lay for him today? Uh, Yeah, today they bring God's word and theological argumentation, which I suppose has been behind most of them. But particularly, they bring the Word of God against Jesus, which is dangerous for so many reasons, not least of which is the fact that he is God's Word incarnate. Maybe it's useful to see what we skipped over today from last Sunday. So we did skip one episode, you could say, and this was the battle that Jesus has with the Sadducees. They send their man forward to try and trap Jesus, and they bring that tale of a woman who had a husband, and then he died, and so she had another husband, then he died, and all these marriages are legitimate. It's still death to us part. But when she gets to the resurrection, who's she going to be married to, right? And uh, this uh, behind this question is that the Sadducees don't really believe in the resurrection at all. And Jesus says something astounding to them. Uh, he says uh, a rebuke. He says, you don't know the power, uh, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And he goes to show that, uh, of course, in eternal life, we'll neither be married nor given in marriage. 
But the important part is to realize that all of the Old Testament saints are described not as dead, but as living, living with God and awaiting the resurrection as we will at the last day as well. And so his overall point is that God is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And it's this same living God that is at work in his holy scriptures. That's why you ought to believe the scriptures as the very power of God. That's what it is. And on the heels of that, then, the Pharisees dare to bring the Bible up as the point of discussion. And in a way, this is much sharper. This is not just a humanly devised trick, but they're asking, from a certain perspective, a good question, right? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? How should we live and act and believe according to it? This is a great question, but like so many questions, the way that the asker brings the question makes a huge difference. Some people ask because they want to know. Some people ask because they're a smart aleck in class trying to make themselves look good, maybe at the expense of the teacher. And that's, of course, what the Pharisees are doing. So they take up the Bible. The Pharisees fail to know this. They know it. They know it so well they're ready to debate Jesus on the question of what is the greatest commandment in the law. Their question is how to read the Bible. And that's always a question of how to interpret and understand it and take the Bible, how we should treat this or that passage. But it's important to remember, I mean, the dogmatic answer in Christianity has always been that really we don't treat the Bible, but we have a ministerial use of our reason when we, when we approach the Scriptures. We don't really sit over them, even though maybe the Bible lays out on our table, and it seems like we're the ones manipulating the pages, trying to make sense of it, and this is our doing. But rather, we understand that it's the Word of God. It's the clear thing. If anything is dim, it's us. And that also then uh, leads into the faith answer, for lack of a better phrase, which is that the Bible isn't something that we treat but it's something that treats us. It's something that works on us because it's the powerful thing, as Jesus said. The power of the scriptures is the power of God because the Holy Spirit is at work. He's the one who inspired its words. He's the one who is very, even now, living and active in that word, like a two-edged sword that addresses us and causes us to deal with us. So once we get to our gospel reading, we'll see this at play when they ask what seems to be a neutral question. Let's have a, a battle, a discussion, a fight, a kind of a quibble about whether this or that law of the Torah is more important, which one ought to be held in hierarchy over the other if there's ever a contradiction or dispute between them. But Jesus shows them that the law is not neutral. It always is asking us a question. It's always convicting us, as we say. This is certainly true of the law. It's also true of the gospel that when it's presented to us, when it's laid before us, it's not laid before us as a trap, but it is laid out so that we would believe it and say amen to it. And thus, for those who don't, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, only judgment remains for them. You wanted to talk a bit about what the Bible is. Yeah, why not? I mean, the Bible is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then we want to ask the question, how do we understand the Scriptures? What is the point of them? Is there a way we understand, comprehend what the Bible is, what the Word of God and His Scriptures are? And the Lutheran answer really is the particularly brilliant light of the law and the gospel rightly distinguish from one another. And we see that very much at work in the two parts of today's gospel. So the Pharisees come with their question, what's the most important thing in the Torah, in the law? And the answer is very clear. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and everything else, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on this, Jesus says. Do it, and you will live, as Jesus says elsewhere. 
But the second part is the gospel when Jesus asks the question, how is it that David's son is also David's Lord? And he looks at Psalm chapter 2. And we see that the answer to that question, if only the Pharisees would have been willing to give it, the answer is Jesus. It is Christ our Lord incarnate in the flesh to save his people. This is the gospel. Likewise, we can say, how does this law and the gospel, how do the scriptures play out in us? In two ways. How do you keep the Bible, you might say? How do you hold it rightly? How do you be a good Pharisee if there is such a thing? It is to keep it in faith and in love. This is the classic way that Luther likes to preach, talking about faith and love. Faith is what we have toward God, and love is what we show towards our neighbor. Faith believes everything that Christ has done for us, for our salvation. Love is that sacrifice that we make to keep the commandments of God, to do what is good for our neighbor. And so really, I think the question of what is the Bible is not only at the root of the gospel today, but also flows through most of the scriptures that we're going to hear today. What connecting themes would you point out? Well, unfolding what we've said here, how the Word of God is to create faith and lead to love, and how the law of God, as we'll see in the gospel reading, cannot save us. In fact, it accuses us unless we've somehow set it aside by doing some kind of pharisaical game that renders it neutral and no longer accusing of us. Rather, it is only Christ, the blessed man of God, who can redeem us. So, again, I want to draw on the part we omitted in the gospel reading here as we're cruising through Matthew, and that's the Sadducees, what Jesus says to them, that you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. What is the power of the scriptures and what we ought to do is to scour them in order to find Christ Jesus. To know their power is to know Christ Jesus. And then to pursue the deeds and the commands that the scriptures have for us, this is love. So, faith And love is what the Word of God, His gospel, and His law give to us. The intro, it is from Psalm 9. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put your trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Glory. It probably was chosen in part because of that phrase there right after the antiphon, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And we're going to see that as the summary of the law in the gospel reading. Love the Lord with all your heart and your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. That's definitely what the rest of this portion of Psalm 9 points to, which is, Love for the neighbor, and a specific kind of neighbor is shown to us. This would be the poor. This would be the oppressed, those who are in need of justice, those who are in need of mercy, those who can't repay themselves, etc. And these sorts of works for those who are in great need is at the heart of what our Old Testament reading will show when it speaks about what it means to be holy as the Lord is holy, and it begins to enumerate some of the second table of the law's good works. This psalm also praises the Lord and extols faith in his steadfast nature. So he's a stronghold. Therefore, we will be glad and rejoice in him and sing praise to his name. And I think particularly that final verse is maybe the one to zero in on, verse 10. Those who know your name, Lord, put their trust in you, because you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
So a beautiful confession of faith. Notice it puts an emphasis on his name, that this unique God of ours, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Trinity, is the one who's truly trustworthy, and the one who puts his trust in him will not be put to shame, will not be forsaken by God. The one who seeks him will not fail to find, as Jesus says. But that, I think, on the one hand, holds out some hope for those who would come to Jesus asking questions. And at some level, that's what we see in the gospel reading. The Pharisees come to Jesus asking him questions. Well, if they are seeking him, the Lord isn't going to forsake them. And yet, as we'll see in the gospel, they don't come seeking him in order to find him and treasure him and exalt in him. They come seeking to destroy him. And as a result, tragically, they're kind of the inverse of this psalm verse. They become those who shall perish forever. What's the collect? The collect reads, O God, you've commanded us to love you above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. Grant us the spirit to think and do what is pleasing in your sight, that our faith in you may never waver and our love for one another never falter through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm not sure what the model is for this prayer. Uh, most of the collects of the day in the three-year lectionary are based off historic collects from the church year, which I think is a wise choice. And in fact, they entirely match during the main part of the Christ part of the church year. Maybe Trinity 8, which does have the phrase about to think and do all such things as are right, which we kind of have there in the second phrase. But above all, the rationale of this collect, that'd be the right after, oh God, shows us that, frankly, the scriptures, the summary of the scriptures that Jesus gives in today's gospel reading is really the formation of this prayer. You've commanded us to love you above all things and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This simpler version of mind, heart, and soul does draw out the distinction between these two loves. To love God is to place him in a priority that nothing else can approach, maybe most especially ourselves. In contrast, the love of our neighbors is related to ourselves, not so much because, as I've heard some people say, we really need to learn how to love ourselves first so that we can learn how to love others. That's kind of a twisting of this passage. Rather, it is the assumption that we know pretty darn well how to love ourselves. It's what we maybe focus on far too often. Therefore, if we know that, certainly we begin to see how to love others. The golden rule is, is a fine summary of this, that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. But our relation to God is unique. He's above all things. He's above us. And that's why the love of God is most often called faith. What we see then is, again, Luther's frequent sermon outline, what I mentioned is kind of a connecting theme today, faith and love. We have this also in the post-communion collect that we're most familiar with, that we would, by his spirit, live in faith toward him and in fervent love toward one another. And I think it's an excellent little prayer of unfolding these passages, of doing Luther's preferred understanding of prayer, that we begin with the Word of God and then we take the Word of God and press it into a prayer back to God. And that's the way that this collect seems to have been formed. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. We'll get into the Old Testament in Leviticus 19 next. Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today. 
500 years before mental health professionals started to do this, Luther was telling people, be aware of what you're thinking, be aware of how you're behaving, change them so that you can help yourself with your depression, with your anxiety. Learn more about Martin Luther on mental health at issuesetc.org. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4Life.org. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Leonard Payton of St. John Lutheran Church, Forest Park, Illinois. Forest Park being an inner ring suburb of Chicago. We're a mile and a half south of Concordia University, Chicago, and a 10-minute walk from a metro station and the ends of both the blue line and the green line. If work is moving you to Chicago, consider joining us. If you're visiting Chicago, come worship with us. It's a church for a great city and a great location. Our website is stjohnforestpark.org. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. Sean, we come to the Old Testament reading, which is Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2, and then picking up again at 15 through 18. And the reason we have a a gap here is mostly because there's many examples in Leviticus 19, and, and maybe through the whole book, of what is stated so clearly and succinctly in verses 1 and 2. I really would say verses 1 and 2 here and this main statement that you shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy is really a fine summary if you had to pick one verse of the entire book of Leviticus and then we'll see it played out in the rest of it beginning at verse 15. So here it is from the beginning. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, verse 15 and on. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you be judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So every time that the phrase, I am the Lord, your God, is repeated, it's drawing us back to that initial statement, you shall be holy, for I am the Lord, and I, the Lord your God, am holy. That statement is as much a promise as it is a command, where he is saying, 
you, my people, shall be a holy people because that's the character of the Lord who's redeemed you. It's very much what we hear before the Ten Commandments when Jesus says, I'm the one who called you out of Egypt, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. It's also a command, though, definitely. These are the things that the people of Israel are not to do. And I think if we examine them, we see not only the injustice to those who are beneath us, but also the tricking of those around us who stand equal to us and even above us, that we're not to be against our neighbors, that our neighbors include maybe specifically those who are close to us, as well as sojourners and, as it says elsewhere in Leviticus, but also that it's not only a matter of actions outside of us, what we do in court, how we act when the money comes out, but it's also what's in our heart. Don't hate your brother in your heart either. And repeated at every case is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And that's to connect it back to the first table of God. So all of these examples of our holy living are examples in the second table of the law that is directed toward our neighbor. But the reason that the Lord punctuates each little section with I am the Lord is to show that this is not arbitrary. It's not I'm God and since I'm God, I make a bunch of rules for how you're supposed to live, so get on it. But it's I am the Lord, therefore I'm bringing you into my way of life. I'm bringing into you, you into my holiness because I'm the one who sanctify you. This is how I do it. This is how my holy ones also do it. This is the foundation of Luther's insight, by the way, whenever he looks at the adjectives that are given to the persons of God, especially the Holy Spirit, as he talks about in the large catechism. Why is he called the Holy Spirit? He's called that because he makes us holy, because he sanctifies us. So very much that's at the root of this statement, be holy because I'm the Lord your God, I'm holy. I'm the one who sanctifies you. It says this very explicitly connected with the third commandment in Exodus 31.13. Now, what I find is interesting, not only does this text fit for that reason, kind of explaining because you love the Lord your God who is holy, therefore you also love your neighbor as yourself to be a holy one. These also happen to be the attitudes and the schemes that we see at work in the Sadducees and the Pharisees as they lie in wait for Jesus trying to trap him. And in Jesus' case, it really brings this passage to its head, this commandment of God. And remember, they're claiming and asking the question, what is the most important law or command in the Torah, including Leviticus, the first five books? Supposedly, maybe they're asking us to pick one of these from 15 to 17. But what Jesus wants to show is that they're to love the Lord their God in faith, and they're to love their neighbor as their self in actions of love and sacrifice. And particularly in the case where they are confronting Jesus and refusing his word, both things are going on here. They're against their neighbor, Jesus the man. They're also against their Lord, Jesus the man, God in the flesh. And they're revealing that Whoever their Lord is, it's not the Lord that's described here in Leviticus because it's not the one who stands in front of them revealing himself to them. The psalm is Psalm 1. Take us into that. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but is delighted in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Most of Psalm 1, I think, if we were to ask the question, which table of the law does this fit in? Is this faith toward God or fervent love toward my neighbor? Much of it seems to be in the second table as well, looking towards our neighbors. Are we scoffers? Are we refusing our neighbors? But at the heart of it is also this analogy of the tree, that the one who knows the Lord's word and meditates on it rightly is planted into it, It gets its life from it, finds the power, is well-rooted and grounded so it doesn't blow away in the judgment like those wicked do. So this very much foreshadows, of course, the gospel reading, that the Lord Jesus knows who's coming at him, and he knows why. He knows whether they're righteous men walking, delighting in the law of the Lord, or whether they're scoffers, in fact, standing in the way of sinners, receiving the counsel that's arraigned against him of the wicked. And, of course, it's the wicked that are attacking him and asking these questions today. We might want to ask also the question, who is meditating and who is using or abusing the word? And who is going to be planted by his streams? We see in the gospel, especially at the end, a refusal to be planted in Jesus Christ, a refusal even finally to ask him any questions. They are blown away by the incident. They no longer bring any questions out of anger or out of interest to him, which we, I think, should see as very tragic. This is the instability that they have found by rejecting the Son of Man. But we'd be remiss if we didn't also see in here something of Christ our Lord as the true fulfillment of this psalm. This is one of the great wisdom psalms along with 19 and 119 that describe the Word of God and its profound power and source of life for the people of God. We know that Jesus is the one who truly walks never in the counsel of the wicked or in the way of sinners or sitting confidently in the seat of scoffers, but the one who truly, day and night, at all times, delights in the will of God, comes to do his will, as Hebrews says, the one who is the blessed man, in whom alone we also may be blessed men. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. Up next, 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 1, the epistle. Issues Etc. relies on a small group of faithful supporters called the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. These listeners have pledged to become monthly or annual contributors to Issues Etc., and this allows us to budget our expenses more efficiently. Now, there are four levels of giving. The Confessor, $25 monthly, or an annual gift of $250. The Apologist, $50 monthly, or an annual gift of $500. The Reformer, $100 monthly or an annual gift of $1,000. And the Patron, $200 monthly or an annual gift of $2,000. Reformation Club benefits include shirts, books, broadcast transcripts, and advertising for confessional Lutheran churches. Learn more about joining the Issues Etc. Reformation Club on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. And look for the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses. Or call Lynn 618 618- 223-8385, The Issues Etc. Reformation Club. This is Kevin Hildebrand, cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, 
inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher, and there's excellent music, including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Contarai and a hymn festival at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu gsi. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Interest Time is a magazine that Lutheran Church Extension Fund publishes to inform and educate readers on what God's people are accomplishing through His blessings. You'll find stories about congregations, schools, and organizations within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that are sharing the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Get your free copy today at interesttime.org slash subscribe. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thanks to Pastor David Shaddy and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Indianapolis for recently renewing their support for the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. When your confessional Lutheran Church pledges $1,000, we'll promote your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues, etc. journal. Find out more about our congregational support program, on the support donate page at issuesetc.org and look for the one-page flyer. Sean, the epistle reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Yep, here we pick off right where we left off last time. Uh, unfortunately, we'll skip a lot of the rest of 1 Thessalonians, but here we have the beginning. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, though We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts." We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. We remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might be able to not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You're our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Again, the epistles don't necessarily line up with the gospel reading, or that's not their direct intention. However, there certainly are some strong parallels to the gospel, and I think maybe this time it's by way of contrast that Paul is rejoicing and giving thanks to God that the hearers in Thessalonica did receive his word, did receive it as the word not of just a prophet or even a traveling swindler, but as God himself And he is delighted by this. He's delighted to see that this word of God is at work in them. And then Paul talks not only about his pleasure to see that they received the word of God and put it into action, that they received the word that charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Remember back to be holy as I am holy. But also we see Paul talking about his attitudes and actions and words and his emphasis on being truthful and honest, which is absolutely at the root of God's word and what it means to be a minister of God's word. So he says in particular that he is speaking at all times to please God, not to please men. This goes right to the first commandment, in fact, that we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That leads then to an action. It leads to honesty because we don't have to speak in such a way that we save ourselves, that we cover our own tail ends, that we overcome our own mistakes, but rather that we we recognize ourselves as weak vessels, as the scriptures say, but yet nevertheless weak vessels that bear a very precious treasure, which is the word of God. That's what leads him not to be greedy, also not to be over the top or flattering with his words, just trying to make friends with people so that they'll receive him but particularly he's at pains to, whether they're friendly or not to him, have no obstacle put in the way of accepting the truth of God. I would love to kind of categorize First Thessalonians 2 here, similar to Leviticus, not you shall be holy as God is holy, but particularly for our pastors, but also for all Christians, you shall be truthful as God is truthful. The truth of God is to be preached, obviously, in pure doctrine, But it's also in the manner in which we preach it, that it has a plainness of speech, which doesn't mean it can't be beautiful, but it does mean it has to be truthful and coherent and not trying to manipulate or trick people into something, but to open our hearts to other people and say, we're speaking to you uh, with sincerity because we don't need to uh, add anything spicy or 
or luring to this word of God. It, it has a message that is powerful enough to grasp you. It has a message that is true, that is eternally true in Christ Jesus. That's what matters. So it leads also then to a sincerity not only in the words but in the actions that they have. And Paul recounts his dramatically sacrificial love. Remember, Paul's the one who says that those who work for the gospel, who preach the gospel, who are ministers and pastors, ought to get their living from the gospel, by which he means that they ought to survive on the generosity of their people who hear them. And yet Paul didn't make that demand as he came to them. He even took that away, though it was his right. He lived in extraordinary sacrificial love for the people. And thus he draws on this to say both that he, like a mother, but also like a father, cared for them deeply, nurtured them, whether it was by encouraging them or by warning them. I want to look just briefly at the last verse again, verse 13. First of all, how great a compliment this is to any minister who have people who receive his word, not as the word of a clever speaker, not because they liked the guy even, but because they knew it was the word of God. If someone ever says to you that God spoke to me today in your words because I hear the voice of the scriptures there. This is a great delight to a pastor. It is our goal, like John the Baptist, to decrease so that Christ himself may increase. Now, in here also, I think there's a twofold connection to our gospel reading that we're getting to very shortly here. The first is that Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is the Word, but also that the Word is to be at work in the believers. But not maybe at work in others. So as the Pharisees are going to bring their trap for Jesus, based in the word of God, based in, you know, which commandment is the best, that whole line of questioning really depends on, A, this person standing in front of them being somebody they can reasonably debate with in the same kind of way that they might do at the lunch table. And the second thing is that this word of God is inanimate and distant and kind of unimportant to my actual life, right? This is like when people debate about movies or people just want to talk about, what did you think about this? And maybe people have passionate opinions, maybe people make their arguments, but you pose this whole question in an arena where it doesn't actually affect your life. I think we've come to that point in our world where we don't talk about religion and politics. Those are dangerous subjects, even though I think our opinions are all the more sharp and inflexible now than they ever have been, which makes them dangerous topics. On the other hand, then we turn to movies and comic books and everything else and these kind of trivial arguments, the kind of Seinfeld arguments, right, and have deep opinions about these and make endless memes about them. Those are safe things to argue about. They don't actually accuse you. You don't have to invest a whole lot in them. And it's almost a joke already because for the person to be so heavily invested in, you know, whether Star Trek or Star Wars is better than the other, it points to the kind of, is a juxtaposition of two things that don't really fit together, that you should be passionate about something that is entirely rooted in fiction. There's a way in which theology has a temptation to become that. The classic example is to count angels on the head of a pin, that it's concerned with questions for questions' sake and not actually concerned with God, with with what he expects, with what he's done for us for our salvation, with how I ought to respond, whether in faith or in love. 
And that's what Jesus' conversation is going to do to them. It's not going to be a, a conversation or a debate about the law. It's going to be a preaching and a, a wrestling with the law that accuses and, and instructs and attacks me. And thus then, in the same way, the question about the gospel, about whose son David's is, how can he be the Christ, is going to be a question that ought to interact with our hearts, our consciences, our souls as well, not just our heads or our kind of clever bone, but it should interact with our conscience, that we actually take heart in this, that we believe it. What are the gradual in verse? The gradual reads, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This gradual, again, is for this kind of post-St. Michael's time, Sundays of the angels, you might call them if you want to give them a little season of their own. But angels is pretty much a miss, I guess, except for maybe the holiness of those angels and the holiness of the Lord's name, which, remember, goes back to our Old Testament reading that he is holy, therefore we also are holy on account of his sanctifying word. So to trust in his sanctifying word, is to find the way of life that that word will lead us into. This is what we're going to see not on display, sadly, in the Pharisees who come only to trap and not, in fact, to be trapped by God's word and and joyously brought into faith. The verse then is kind of a key verse from Matthew 22, our gospel today, and maybe the one that hasn't gotten as much direct, explicit focus, and that is a summary of the first table of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's somewhat absent from our readings. We've had a lot of focus on the second table, on the matter of serving our neighbors in particular. But what is great about even this, love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind, elsewhere it also says with all your strength, is that we see how already kind of being hinted, even as we're looking at maybe the first, second, and third commandments, how our whole person is to be pressed into the Lord's service and the service of holiness, a sanctified life, and all the works of love that flow out of that. So this is what it means when it says, if I'm going to be holy, it is so that you also will be holy. And that's why even in the midst of speaking about very practical matters with our neighbors, the Lord wants to always assert, I am the Lord. That's the reason and why. We see this in Luther's explanations that, that really reiterate that we fear and love God. This is what leads us then to avoid the things that are contrary to his word and to embrace those things that are in service to our neighbor according to his word. We will get into the gospel reading for this coming Sunday according to the three-year lectionary, Matthew 22, with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, next. The church's music from the second century. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love the sixth century. The twelfth century. The 16th century. The 21st century. 
the best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Christological, Creedal, Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy or slavery or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Ad Crucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We come at last year to the gospel reading in Matthew 22, beginning at verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which we omitted, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So you can see the kind of huddling, right? This just feels like a basketball game, right? Where you huddle up and uh, the coach lays out the plan and let's look at the clock and let's see our position on the field. Maybe it's football. Let's see our position on the field. And, okay, now we have to react to that play that was just made. And then Jesus comes over the huddle and breaks it up and asks him a question. So they come arguing to entrap him. Uh, At best, they want to get into an argument that they can slip away from. They don't come asking teach us about the law, enlighten us about God's law. They don't come to Jesus and say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, like Peter does. But they ask, which is the best? This is kind of a debatable question. What's the most important thing? And if you give an answer, it's easier to kind of run with it for a while. Oh, yeah, I could see that, but what about this? And maybe this is more important. It depends on your situation. And pretty soon, the whole question just gets lost in the dust and and Maybe that's the best thing to do if you're on rocky ground like they are. The response of Jesus is not to engage in that ethical debate. It's to accuse them and put them on the ropes, put the horns into them, because he speaks what the law actually does. You shall not do this. You shall do that. 
this is the way the Lord's commandments are. They're not really playthings. They have a claim that they make on us. They're addressed to us. This is the way the law is. This is why Lutherans say that the law always accuses. I think this is an important point to see in this exchange in the gospel is, I mean, it isn't wrong to talk about what the Torah says. It isn't wrong to meditate on it day and night, as we heard in the psalm. It's not wrong to explicate all of the nuances of what it means to keep the fifth commandment. Jesus himself is famous for this in his Sermon on the Mount. But when you treat it as neutral, when you treat it simply as a list of options to try or a list of rules to remember and and not as a list of rules to be done at all times and not simply from the action but from the heart, then you miss that the the law accuses anyone who is a sinner, which, which we believe will be all people until the last day. That means even the Christian who hears the law is accused insofar as sin remains in their flesh. And we know that this is going to be our condition to the end of the day. We fight against it. We're resistant to it. We ask God to give us his spirit and lead us in the ways of righteousness, not in the ways of wickedness anymore. We want to leave sin behind now that the forgiveness of Christ has been given to us. But the law always accuses, even if that's not the only thing that it may be doing. There's a a rich word in here that doesn't come out in our ESV translation, and that's in verse 40, that these two commandments hang on the law and the prophets. And maybe that means nothing, although it does happen to be the same hanging word that is used for cursed as he is hung on a tree, the hanging on the cross. What does that phrase mean? That in what way are the law and the prophets hanging on the commandments, the summary of them? Well, it's both that the law and the prophets revolve around it. I think we see this in Exodus and Leviticus when we look at the Ten Commandments, the two tables, love God, love your neighbor, faith toward God and fervent love toward one another. We also see that the prophets are calling people back to the Lord for their idolatry, their their abandonment of him in a very direct sense, but also their abandonment of his ways. I desire mercy and not just the sacrifices that are required. I want steadfast love. I want you to take care of the poor and the oppressed. I want you to bring in the full tithe. I don't want you to just say, the Lord, the Lord, and think that that's all it adds up to. So the law and the prophets hang on these, this summary of, of the Old Testament right there. They also are always explicating it and calling us back to it in repentance. But they're also hanged on it as in being hanged on the horns of a dilemma. And the dilemma is that it's never been kept. I find myself continually going back to Acts 15 and the brilliant thing that St. Peter says uh, to kind of close that council down when he says uh, that the Gentiles are going to be saved by faith in Christ just as we are, by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as we are. But maybe the other side of that is how he says, you know, we Jews have been devoting ourselves to this Torah for our whole lives to somewhat poor success, as you've noticed. The fact that the Lord has to keep sending prophets shows that we need to be called back to it even still. So we have never succeeded in this thing to be righteous by that, he says. This is not the way of righteousness. The way of righteousness is by grace in Christ Jesus. And that then is what the Lord is laying out to them. He's entrapping them in the law. They came with the law, so he turns the tables on them and shows them that if you want to go by this kind of a question, it's not going to be a comic book debate. It's going to end up with you being damned and condemned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in response to this, though, Jesus asks his own question, 
And it is of a totally different character. It is not to trap. It's not to entrap. It's not to bring to destruction as they brought him. And you can tell that by its answer. I think it's well known to us who are Christians and it should be immediately obvious to us. But the answer to the question, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? The answer is he's Jesus. If you want to talk about the son of David, great. This passage from Psalm 2 is perfect, that David's son is also David's Lord. And how can that be? It can only be by grace. How is that the case? What is the solution to the conundrum that David's son is also the Lord who made him? The answer to that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that uh, he who was eternally begotten of the Father now takes on human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, that this one is my Lord, the one I believe in. Jesus asked these questions in order to lead them to the answers to the questions. And if they had gotten the answers to the questions, which were not trick questions, they would have, in fact, grasped him. He's the answer. They're to come to him. This is what the scriptures, in fact, the Torah, is pointing us to because he's the one who's hanged in our place in order to redeem us from the curse of the law that is always accusing us and won't stop until the last day. But they don't. So it's important to see that the end of this, when nobody's able to answer him and they stop asking questions anymore, this is different than what we heard earlier in the gospel when they had that banter about John the Baptist. Is he uh, from God or from man? Was this John's baptism or is it my baptism? And Jesus says the kind of sassy thing, if you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you. It's quite a different thing here. Jesus asks all questions that lead, if you would only follow the logic, to himself. And he does not say, I won't tell you the answer. They say, we're not going to say anything anymore. They're going to become silent. And in fact, they're never going to seek him out again. So they refuse to talk. And now they even refuse to ask And this is tragic. This is the hardened heart that runs away, thinking that it can escape the accusation of the law, but it ends up losing the gospel as well. Because the gospel is the free grace of God in Christ Jesus that forgives sins. And if you won't be a sinner, then you won't receive it. About one minute to say something about the hymns. The hymn of the day that's appointed is I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. It's a very simple song. It does fit, I guess, in the first verse of kind of with Psalm 1. Beyond that, it might not so much. Other than it does talk about treasuring Jesus. He's our star and our treasure. We want to walk as one who belongs to him. And that certainly is kind of the antidote to what we see with the Pharisees. I might suggest, in addition to that hymn, or in place of it, the hymns that speak about the Word of God and the law and the gospel that are on display richly in our text today, especially 581, the Luther's These Are the Holy Ten Commands. It'd be great to sing about these commandments that are summed up in our Alleluia verse and in the summary that Jesus gives in the Gospels. I think this is also a great day to take a pair of hymns. You could do one as the hymn of the day before the sermon and one after it, or maybe one at the beginning of the service and one at the end. And that is 579, 580. The law of God is good and wise. The gospel shows the Father's grace. This pair of hymns that together explain what the law and the gospel are, the article of doctrine that's on display today as Jesus shows himself in the power of the scriptures. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you very much. My pleasure. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield about the five lies of our anti-Christian age, and we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson 
on Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's small catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wildwood, Missouri is a proud sponsor of Issues Etc. And if you enjoy the relevant, Christ-centered teachings presented on this program, then you should come and join us at St. Paul's on Sundays at 9 a.m., where you will hear sermons that proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins and enjoy in-depth Bible studies to help us grow as disciples. For more information, check us out at stpaullutheranwildwood.org.